0: Common mistakes, uh, perhaps the most common, is to micromanage a person rather than letting him or her uh, sink or swing a, li- a little bit on their own, to flounder a little bit, to begin to be forced to think in great detail about what they're doing, why they're doing it, whether the experiment is practical, and whether anyone in the world will ever care about whatever they discover.
1: Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I
2: am Jonathan Whiteson. Welcome
1: Welcome to to The the Lonely Lonely Pipette, Pipette.
2: helping scientists
1: do better science. (laughs)
0: Uh, My name is Bob Weinberg. I'm uh, located at the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts, affiliated with the MIT Department of Biology, and I'm very pleased today to be able to discuss my life and my science with Lonely Pipette.
2: Robert, or Bob Weinberg, was born in Pittsburgh in 1942 to a family of refugees from Germany. He did his PhD in biology at uh, MIT uh, in the lab of Sheldon Penman. And then he did uh, two postdocs, one at the Weizmann Institute in Rehovot with uh, Ernest Winnicore, and then at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, with Renato Dulbecco. He then came back to MIT and became a professor in 1982, and he's been there for the rest of his career. He's a founding member of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, the Daniel Ludwig Professor for Cancer Research, and an American Cancer Society research professor at MIT. His research has focused on the genetic basis of cancer. Um, he and his colleagues isolated the first human cancer-causing gene, the RAS oncogene, and the first known tumor suppressor gene, RB, the retinoblastoma gene. His research program studies how oncogenes and tumor suppressors function together in the complex circuitry that controls cancer cell growth. He's also interested in the molecular and cellular biology mechanisms of invasion and metastasis. Bob, thanks for accepting to come and share your tips With the Lonely Pipette. My pleasure. So I've I've followed your career for many, many years. So we're very excited to to have you with us. But maybe um, for those who don't know, uh, maybe you could tell us how you decided to become a scientist.
0: Well, I I decided to become a scientist, like many aspects of my life, through the back door. Uh, I first went to undergraduate work also at MIT uh, to go and become pre-med because in those days... Uh, That's what young men did. They became uh, doctors. And so I I went to MIT, studied biology as an undergraduate, and during my first year, I heard that doctors, clinicians, had sometimes to stay up all night. And that was not for me. I need my sleep. (laughs) So as a consequence, I decided I did not want to become a clinician, a doctor, and instead I entered the world of uh, biology. Indeed, that was a very propitious time to do so simply because that was the time when the genetic code was being deciphered. That was the time when uh, the overall outlines of molecular biology were being laid out. And I was entranced by this because of the very simple thought, simple realization that one could understand the entirety of the biosphere in terms of the simple rules of DNA makes RNA makes proteins. Stunning for me because otherwise, Biological complexity seemed infinite and unlimited, but here one had a small set of rules that seemed to govern everything. And so that pulled me deeper and deeper into the world of molecular biology, which at the time was already being initiated at MIT, in the MIT Department of Biology. So it was a very lucky time for me to be there as well.
2: If you hadn't become a biologist, what would you have become?
0: I might have become a carpenter. I'm I'm sitting right now in the uh, cabin wife and I built uh, starting in 1975. Uh, I I like to build things, and so it's by now a quite large uh, cabin. It it has probably uh, 400 square meters in it of living space, and and I also like to garden, so I could have become a handyman, a gardener and, and a carpenter working with my hands, which I find enormously satisfying. Indeed, I'm happiest when I can alternate back and forth between my laptop and its science, and work outside in the garden or repairing things in, in the cabin and so forth, or building rock walls. All kinds of different things, just to keep me reasonably happy.
1: That's really interesting what you're saying because we we, we may we will go uh, in, into this topic a bit later. You had a, a long and brightful career. Can you think of one of the tough moments in your scientific career when you had a lot of tops, when you, you, you did maybe consider uh, living
0: science? Cancer research, indeed biological research in general, is obviously a field for manic depressives, highs and lows. And therefore, there have been times when I've been elated and other times when, of course, I've been very discouraged. Much of these dynamics played themselves out in the years uh, 1979, 80, when I thought I had a a very original idea, which was to take DNA from chemically transformed cells and determine whether or not that DNA carried the information for a cell being cancerous. And so we began experiments uh, on this idea, um, starting uh, in 1978, 79. And after we'd been doing this for a month or two, I thought that this very original and brilliant idea of mine uh, was solely mine, but in fact, it became apparent that I'd read about experiments just like this that had appeared in the journal Nature several months previously, and I came to realize that what I thought was my own idea was not my own idea at all. Uh, And having done that, uh, we nevertheless proceeded. And the the author of the earlier paper in Nature um, soon was on the job market and was soon being um, courted by a whole series of institutions, including the wanted Harvard Medical School, including uh, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And he was even being invited to give a talk at MIT, where I was employed in the then recently founded Center for Cancer Research. And this was most depressing for me, because here my seniors were trying to recruit a person who was doing exactly the kind of work that I myself had undertaken and uh, began to move forward. Uh, For me, it was hardly a vote of confidence. I was most depressed. But nevertheless, we pressed ahead. And in the end, what happened was that the uh, experiments that had been reported two months earlier in nature actually were never even carried out. It was a bit of a a, a, um, fakery that was involved there. And so uh, the idea was not mine. But the experiments that we did in the year 78, 79, my graduate student uh, take, doing all of the wet bench uh, laboratory work, uh, proceeded and it actually succeeded uh, by the uh, beginning of 1979 to show that the DNA of chemically transformed cells actually carries genetic information to make those cells grow in a malignant or neoplastic fashion that was to my mind the most important thing that ever happened in my laboratory but obviously it was preceded by many highs and many lows
2: we've heard you uh, refer to yourself as a scientific gypsy uh, <laughs> can you tell us what, what did you mean by it what, what do you mean by that and what's the advantage of being a gypsy in the scientific world
0: well a gypsy is perhaps a little bit uh, too flamboyant <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is one can spend one's entire career working on a very specific, narrow problem. And indeed, uh, that characterizes the career of Arthur Kornberg, who won the Nobel Prize for uh, um, DNA polymerase. And uh, in in fact, uh, Germans have a a word for that. It's called Fachidiot, which means (laughs) someone who knows more and more about a very narrow uh, swath of science. But you move to the left or to the right of that narrow field, and that person is totally out to sea, has no idea what's going on. And so uh, one of my philosophies has always been that it's extremely important and useful to understand what's going out in the world, what's coming out of laboratories, uh, what they're producing in areas that are not so closely related to my own. And to the extent that there are interesting things there that are going on, to pounce on them opportunistically because they might offer new opportunities to do interesting and innovative work. Such a lifestyle is a little bit uh, uncomfortable for the granting agencies uh, in, in this country, in the United yeah. States. Sure, <laughs> they ask you to, um, they ask uh, one to propose a, a research agenda. To the extent that the grant is funded, one receives the funds six or eight months later, and by that time, being opportunistic and being a bit gypsy-like, one has moved on to other problems, or at least problems in a related area hardly what one proposed to do six or eight months earlier. And this suggests the need to be a little flexible and to not uh, conform rigidly to the agenda that one initially laid out in a grant proposal. And to the credit of NIH at the end of the granting period, they don't really hold one one to the uh, letter of what one proposed. Instead, they asked what did one do and was it interesting and useful, which to my mind is a far more useful question than whether one actually adhered strictly to what one proposed to do uh, at the beginning of the granting period.
2: If, if a young scientist is setting out at the beginning of their career, and they listen to what you say, how do you get the balance right between being focused, which everyone tells you, you've got to be focused, and at the same time, uh, fluttering because that brings richness from different fields?
0: Well, uh, it, it depends actually on, on one's uh, status in, in one's career. I, as a principal investigator, a PI, have multiple people working in my laboratory. And if uh, one or another new area comes up, I can perhaps ask one of the people in my lab if they might be interested in working on it, not telling telling them they should do so, but might they be interested in it, without diverting other people in the lab who already have their own research agenda in full uh, swing, uh, not to leave what they committed themselves to do. So having a group of six, eight, 10 people at the at the lab bench allows one on occasion to bring in new areas of research and many of these new areas in my own experience ultimately end up being the dominant themes in my laboratory's work 5 and 10 years later.
2: We we want to focus more on the scientist than the science, but I do want to ask you about a paper that you wrote which is the famous hallmarks of cancer paper. So this paper has been cited over 20,000 times, and I know you wrote an, an update, which has also been cited thousands and thousands of times.
0: Together with Douglas Hanahan, it should be said.
2: Yeah, Hanahan and Weinberg, Hallmarks of Cancer. Um, so can you tell us something about the genesis of that paper? Why do you think it's had such an impact? Why, why has everyone read and cited this paper?
0: Well, uh, several things should be said. I, I just mentioned the fact that I was very excited in the 1960s with the realization that one could understand the totality, the complexity of the biosphere in terms of a small set of rules. The same way that, for example, Newton's uh, laws of physics could explain much of the uh, behavior of mechanical systems. Uh, Already that formulated three or four hundred years ago. The question then was how did that relate, that simplicity, that simplification to understanding the complex field of cancer research. The fact is, uh, when I first came into it, I I was entering a field which, uh, in the eyes of molecular biologists at the time, let's say in the er early 1970s, uh, a field that was in great disrepute. Uh, In fact, I once was at a meeting in the UK uh, in in the late uh, 1970s and heard a cancer researcher there, an older person, tell me, frankly, never, ever confuse cancer research with science, the (laughs) fact of the matter being that it was indeed a complex grab bag of phenomenologies with no underlying coherence, no logical structure, just observations here, there, and everywhere whose connectedness with one another was most obscure. And so that was most unsatisfying for me, who had taken quantum mechanics and, 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 and all kinds of chemistry as an undergraduate as well as for Douglas Hanahan, who also was an MIT undergraduate at one point in his life. And one day uh, in um, uh, late uh, 1990s, he and I, Hanahan, were at a meeting uh, organized by the American Association for Cancer Research in Hawaii. And uh, one afternoon, we played hooky. That is, we ducked out of the meeting. (laughs) Uh, We had a a rental car. We drove to uh, the mouth of a purportedly uh, extinct volcano. And we started walking up into the mouth of the volcano. And during this trip, we began to discuss how unsatisfying it was that cancer research was such an unstructured body of phenomenologies with no logical conceptual coherence. And so we said, might it be the case, shouldn't it be the case, that one can somehow organize conceptually the complexity of cancer research in terms of a small number of underlying themes. That really was the the motivation for this discussion. And not long thereafter, I got an invitation from Nature toward the end of 1999 whether I would like to write a review article for the inaugural issue of the new millennium. And I rose to the occasion, told Doug Hanahan of this invitation. And so he and I began to draft what came to be called the hallmarks of cancer his inventing the, the title Hallmarks, and the iconic uh, graphic which shows at the time of the six critical commonalities that are shared by what we believe to be most, if not all, cancer cells. That uh, number of six being expanded a bit 11 years later with the Hallmarks of Cancer, the next generation. A question is why it became so popular. He and I both expected that our review article or articles, like most review articles, would sink like a stone thrown into a quiet pond. <laughs> but in fact, it didn't happen that way. And the question is, why did it not happen that way? To my mind, one reason for its so-called popularity is that it's, an, it's convenient for someone writing up a paper simply to cite that review article and thereby obviating the task of actually citing primary literature, which might be more relevant. So it's an, it's an act of convenience to cite that paper rather than being a tribute to its conceptualizing powers that is the powers to enable one to understand the diverse phenomena that together are grouped under the field of cancer research
2: so i always tell my I'll tell my students to read it because of because of its its real power of conceptualizing across different cancer types these key features
1: so i always
2: Tell my students to read it.
1: So, do you think uh, I have a question? For example, as advice to young scientists or young researcher, uh, do you think this concept of simplifying or maybe trying to find the smallest number of rules to define a, a concept is 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 an advice that we should we should give to to researcher to, to try to to push forward complex uh, phenomenon like now epigenetics and, and other topics like this.
0: Well, as we all know, uh, there's a great love for big data sets that that has grown over the last decade. And so individuals, many researchers, like to gather large data sets to generate them for their own sake, as if generating a large data set is on its own a major achievement. And from a point of view of uh, scientific logistics, uh, it is indeed a a tribute uh, to the energy and the technological uh, skills of the people who put it together. But for me, there's always uh, a subsequent question. Having generated the large data set, what does it mean? Why is it important? Or will this large data set, like thousands that have been generated in previous years, simply be filed away on a, um, on a library shelf with no one ever consulting it? You may have seen the, the uh, movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they take the uh, lost ark, and they put it on a dolly, and they move it into a very large warehouse, pushing it way far to the back end of the warehouse, where it's clear it will never be seen by anyone ever again. Just because it's there, it's simply stored there with no utility uh, and no attraction for anyone who soon forgets that it's even there. And so the question is, to what extent do we have some interesting take-home lessons And to what extent are these data sets so complex that they vastly overwhelm our ability to conceptualize what they mean and to draw any take-home lessons? And so one thing I say to the young scientists is, you've generated all these data here. What do they mean? What are the take-home lessons? And if you can't explain to me in several sentences or in a paragraph what the conclusions are, then I begin to raise the question of whether it was worthwhile gathering these data sets to begin with. Of course, the defenders of large data sets will always say, um, you can never tell when they might be useful to uh, someone in the future who may consult them. And of course, you can never tell. Uh, It's a bit like uh, I in my workshop up here in New Hampshire where I am, I'm a bit of a pack rat. And so if I get a piece of hardware, I always store it away in some very special place. Because as I say to myself, I can never be sure when I might need or not need this piece of hardware. And often that's quite useful, but it's hardly a guaranteed thing. And so this provokes the question whether the enormous time and financial resources and labor that have been invested into generating large data sets yield true functional biological insights or are they simply uh, uh, mathematical abstractions that will never be convertible to uh, ways that one can grasp and, and, and conceptualize in any simple fashion.
2: So that's that's an important point for for young scientists who've been born into this big data era. So um, we wanted to talk a, a bit about your your mentoring style and 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 your mentoring skills. Uh, but but perhaps first you you said that that one of the most influential mentors in your career was uh, David Baltimore. So um, so so what did you get from Baltimore? What did he teach you?
0: My own career w- was very much influenced by him. And his mentoring style, one of the most important things he said to me early on in in my career, we had adjacent labs and shared many lab resources. One of the most important things he said to me is, I never want to be on any paper with you, Bob Weinberg, (laughs) simply because if we're on papers together, everybody will say, look what David Baltimore did, rather than look what Bob Weinberg did. And that would strongly interfere with my ability to develop my own scientific reputation. And so it might have sounded nasty, but in fact, it was very well intended. It meant and encouraged me to develop my own independent identity, independent of Baltimore.
1: Do you think as a mentor now, it's important to you to teach this to, to the other new researcher? Why, why is that so important?
0: It's always uh, been a, an implicit goal of mine, influenced in part by the exposure to Baltimore, that the people I train in my lab should be forced to think independently uh, on their own, rather than simply being a set of trained hands who works uh, for a principal investigator. I'm not interested in having a, a series of super technicians come out of my lab. In principle, it may not always succeed, I'm interested in training people who can think independently on their own two feet, who can start their own research groups. Uh, and who can move in new directions once they do start their own research groups. And as a consequence of this, when somebody comes to my own lab, I've checked them out prior to their coming, uh, uh, we talk about what they want to work on, and they will propose a series of projects, and then uh, I will respond to what propositions are. I will say, some of them, they sound totally unworkable. Others, I I will say, not in a brutal way, it's a rather trivial question you're addressing. Or I will ask, what question would you be addressing by doing this work? Or I will say, you can't do that because somebody in the lab is working on something very similar. And the last thing I want is for there to be intramural competition between various members of my group. And so uh, we go through a whole list of things that they propose, not I propose. And they may propose something which is a bit risky. And I say, Well, why don't you run with it for three or six months and see how it goes? And if it doesn't go well, then we'll make a course correction. But I want to force them to think on their own two feet, and I don't want them to think of themselves as super technicians for their uh, principal investigators. I'm very reluctant to assign somebody to a, a specific research project rather than suggesting a series of projects, one of which may or may not strike their fancy.
2: What do you think are common uh, mistakes that that mentors make?
0: Well, a common mistakes, uh, perhaps the most common, is to micromanage a person rather than letting him or her uh, sink or swing a a little bit on their own, to flounder a little bit, to begin to be forced to think in great detail about what they're doing, why they're doing it, whether the experiment is practical. And whether anyone in the world will ever care about whatever they discover. These are very important uh, concepts and questions to pose. And um, to the extent that all of these things are answered by the principal investigator, uh, I think one does the trainee a great disservice. These are uh, issues that, that a, princi- that a uh, postdoctoral fellow, for example, needs to wrestle with already early in their career continue to wrestle with throughout the remainder of their career for the next 30, 40, or 50 years. To my mind, those are fundamentally important. There are some people who are very unsettled by the prospect of not knowing with certainty what they want to be working on and what will succeed and what won't succeed. Uh, And in fact, there are people who make very good careers not being uh, risk takers. But those people often do not innovate in, in any new and interesting directions. And there is no innovation without risk. There is no innovation without risk. And yet another aspect that I teach people in my laboratory, I want them to know about a whole series of things in modern biological research, not just the narrow area of cancer research. And uh, the reason why that's so important is that, in my experience, innovation comes from synthesizing findings in other areas of research with our own work and applying them so that one really becomes uh, aware of being able to apply things for applications in our own area of research that have never been thought of before. I think that's very important.
2: Recruiting is clearly key to, to this whole um, mentoring philosophy. So, so what, are the, what are the qualities that you look for in a student and postdoc? And how do you, how do you find whether they have what you, what's right for the Weinberg Lab?
0: So uh, I often say that recruiting the right people is the most important thing that a PI can do because if you recruit really good people, they think for themselves and they get the work done and they don't need the constant hand-holding of of the PI, which in any case is uh, ineffective in terms of being able to get really interesting things done. So recruitment is the most important thing I can do, even more important than giving people a good training environment. That raises the question of what criteria I look at. Some people write to me and they say, I know how to do Southern blots and a CRISPR-Cas9 and a whole series of other techniques.
1: Really technical.
0: And their technical mastery is for them, for them already a, a documentation of how good they are as a scientist. But I'm interested in a whole series of other things. First of all, can they think on their own two feet? Can they think logically and rigorously and, and, and determine whether publications are credible or not credible? And equally important to all those things, how well do they get along with others in their own laboratory? How long do they get along? How well do they get along with their peers? Mm -hmm. In my experience, this is as important as the so-called scientific attributes of people. And therefore, I I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what kind of a person, what kind of a human being uh, one is dealing with who's applied to one's lab. Sometimes I'll make a call to their previous mentor, and I've pushed the point very hard. (laughs) How well do they get along with everyone around them? Sometimes their mentor says, well, they're really excellent scientists, but actually they've had some difficulties with some of the other people in the lab. And even though that person may be brilliant beyond measure, that's already the kiss of death for me, because I don't like having a situation in my own lab where people don't enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll walk through the lab and there's a group with three or four people who are talking about the most recent baseball game. And I'm excited about that, not because yeah. <laughs> I want them to talk about baseball, but it means that they actually have something in common and they get along and they like each other. And they might even go out and, uh, and do things together outside of the lab. Of course, I don't want everybody to kiss and hug every morning when they come in the lab. <laughs> but I, I, I very much uh, am buoyed by an atmosphere where people like and admire one another, are helpful to one another, are not secretive, and where the, uh, the culture of the laboratory is one of mutual cooperation rather than jealousy. Do, do
2: you have a favorite question that you ask at interviews? that helps to, to highlight those qualities that you're looking for?
0: Well, the human qualities one can never really parse out uh, or rarely parse out in an interview. If Let's say a person comes and talks to my group. And by the way, when they do, um, I ask them to meet one-on-one with four, five, six people in my group, half an hour each, each and meet one-on-one to ask uh, these people what they're working on and to have the people in my group evaluate them. And after they've left, I asked the people in my group, what do you think about this person? Is this some person you would like to be with, to exist with? Because it's almost like a marriage. You take on a, a new postdoc, for example, and you have them for three, four, five, six years. You can't arrange a divorce very easily. It's it's rather painful. Science is a love story. <laughs> I, if somebody applies to me from a distant uh, research uh, institution or department I'll often ask some of my lab alumni to do some espionage and try to find out <laughs> what they can about whether this person is liked or is really quite isolated and and, and uh, seems somehow to alienate uh, some of his or her colleagues. It's this kind of espionage, I, I don't think it's really unethical, uh, which... I find very valuable. So you do like a a
1: peer review uh, of your candidate. This is what you're doing with your team.
0: Yes, because if you listen to the qualities I value in people, their ability to think clearly, their ability to think creatively, and uh, their ability to get along with their peers, not all of that can be gotten from letters of recommendation, which often are not totally frank, or from a, a bibliography. Often someone will come to me Uh, as a candidate, will come to my lab and they'll present an extraordinarily effective talk, which indicates to me very clearly and unambiguously what a fine mind they have. And that assessment cannot always be achieved by reading their published opus.
1: Do you think you can spot what makes a good scientist early in his career?
0: I'm not confident of my ability of what will make a good scientist early in his or her career. I cannot know how much they will become risk takers. I cannot know how much they will be threatened by information not directly associated with their own research that they may be reluctant to integrate into their own conceptual scheme of how the world works. So there are many human qualities which really are critical to the long-term success of a uh, person, um, which you really can't judge that well while that person is in my lab. Perhaps the most important human quality is how well they deal with other people and how well they deal with their trainees, their future trainees. I've had totally brilliant people in my laboratory who've gone out into the lab, into the world I should say, who've gone out into the world and run extremely successful and innovative research projects. And I've had yet others who are extraordinarily brilliant go out and fall on their face and fail not because they didn't have the intellectual equipment, but because they were unable for various human reasons to attract a coterie of young people to work with them. And so it's this latter attribute that is almost impossible to judge when somebody is still training with me. Doing science successfully is not totally uh, judgeable by the scientific merits of someone. There are other aspects which are strong determinants. My father was a dentist, and he once said to me, 50% 50% of being a, a successful dentist is being a good businessman. And what did he mean by that? Well, 50% was, was uh, important in knowing how to drill teeth and set crowns. But the other 50% was knowing how to deal with one's patient, uh, patients. That is to say, not how to get as much money as possible out of them, but instead how to deal with them in a way that makes them want to come back to one's dental chair. And and that stuck with me because I think these human attributes are extremely important as determinants of scientific success. People hearing that would say, well, it's really unreasonable that one's human qualities should intrude so much on uh, one's career trajectory. But we live in a real world, and a real world is made of real people. Or as I often say, the trouble with science is it's done by human beings. So on that note, we're going to take
2: a short break, okay and uh, when we come back we want to hear more about about
1: who is bob weinberg hey folks don't run away you're listening to the lonely pipette with ronald and jonathan weisman where our goal is to help scientists do better science if you're enjoying the show
2: and you want to learn more you can follow us on twitter at lonely pipette
1: and please share the podcast with your friends if you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that.
2: Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. So you, you're, a, you're a natural, Bob. So so in the second half, so welcome back. We're going to be um, asking some questions more about... about um, a little less about Bob in the lab and a little bit more about, about how you've navigated your career in and out of
1: the lab. Okay. Thank you, Bob, uh, again, to, to, to be here with us and to give us all these tips. If we if we want to navigate a bit into in the challenges, we know that you have a long and bright foot career. And we want to ask you what was the biggest challenge you had to face and what did you learn from it?
0: The, the biggest challenge that I had to face were the experiments in in the late 1970s, which really represented uh, a technical challenge and a, a scientific agenda that was hardly preordained to succeed. Again, I refer to the work of taking DNA from chemically transformed cells and demonstrating that that DNA actually carried neoplastic or, or oncogenic information. And um, here, I, I came to realize that In difficult problems, one often needs to wait a year or two to see whether they're given enough time to succeed. And obviously, toward the end of that year or two period, if they haven't succeeded, that creates great doubts and uncertainty, not only in the minds of the mentor, myself, but also uh, in the minds of the people who are actually doing the work at the lab bench. Still, this can be a very stressful experience, and there's been many such stressful experiences Were ideas that were in the beginning uh, conceived of being very useful and and yielding of important information uh, actually ended up getting stuck in the mud and never moving anywhere. To go a bit further,
1: could you think now of something that you consider as a failure in one time in your career and what did you learn from it?
0: To the extent that there have been uh, failures in my career, and there have been many, The fact of the matter is that uh, one realizes in retrospect that the technology was not up to do what one hoped to do, that the hypothesis was misconceived from the very beginning, or that the person working on it was simply not up to the task. The third alternative, in fact, is not something I will let my feelings be uh, clear about. I don't want to make somebody feel very inadequate and a failure for having not succeeded in a daring scientific uh, agenda but often certain uh, experimental problems are beyond the capabilities of uh, the person who's actually working on them in spite of their ambitions and and their technical skills we're all different and there's never been two people identical in their ability to move forward different kinds of projects what is
1: for you uh, for yourself the big the biggest achievement that uh, you are the most proud
0: of Well, to refer back to the work in the 1970s, the work that I'm most proud of was demonstrating that the DNA of chemical transformed cells carried oncogenic information. This was uh, profoundly important conceptually for the field of cancer research, in my opinion, because we knew that chemical carcinogens could induce cancer. Bruce Ames' work uh, had demonstrated that chemical carcinogens are often mutagenic. But the missing piece in this conceptual puzzle was the inference that the genomes of cancer cells carried mutant DNA, carried mutated genes that were in one way or another actually responsible for the phenotypic aberrations, for the biological aberrations of cancer cells. And uh, this work I just described provided the first direct testimonial to that fact.
2: Is there, is there a paper that you, that you give all the students coming to your lab that, that you feel is a paper that everyone has to read?
0: There is no paper that I give everyone in my lab uh, that they have to read. The question is what they're working on, and I may suggest that they read uh, recent papers from the lab that uh, shed light on the problem they may end up working on. Uh, I don't say they have to read it, and I certainly would not uh, assign to them ancient papers which might reflect on past glory of the laboratory or its past achievements, but are ultimately in substance irrelevant to the project that uh, they're undertaking.
2: And can you think of a book that you've read that that really impacted you, your scientific life or the way you, your philosophy of life? Is there a book that you that's had a big influence on you?
0: I'm hard pressed to cite a single book that uh, acts uh, or acted in an important way to influence my my thinking. I'm mostly a a, a verbal, uh, oral person. Most of my information comes from talking with people. I was the single author of two editions of a cancer biology textbook. And people imagine that I spent much of my time combing through the World Wide Web for different papers. But in fact, almost all of it came from talking with people at scientific meetings. That sounds terrible, but in fact, that's the way my mind works. And I'm not saying everybody's mind should work that way or does work that way. But each of us uh, integrates information in different ways. My information integration comes not from reading, but from talking to people and asking them provocative questions. Provocative questions, not intended to put them off balance, but intended to draw them out uh, and have them articulate the way they're thinking about one or another scientific issue.
2: That's great. So, so can you tell us a bit a bit about your 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 life, maybe outside of the lab? Do you, Do you have a, a morning routine, um, and what does it look like?
0: Um. By the way, I I trust my my wife's guitar playing is not coming across. (laughs) My daily routine is often to start working on the early side, like at 7 o'clock. And at 11 o'clock, after I've done my uh, daily ablutions on the email uh, and working on some manuscripts, to come in and, and start talking with people and working in the lab, doing so until five or six in the evening. That's my daily schedule. Uh, When the digital revolution came uh, about uh, more than two decades ago, everybody said our lives would become much easier. But on the contrary, uh, my own life has become much more burdensome and tiresome because one needs to uh, respond in different ways to the tsunami wave of emails that come in every day that require one's attention. So this hasn't lessened one's uh, need uh, to attend to uh, affairs. In fact, it's exaggerated them. And uh, given the, uh, the convenience of email, there are far fewer barriers to communicate with people than there used to be. In the old days, you might have to write a letter to somebody in hard copy. Now you just sit down at a keyboard, type out a couple of questions, and send it out. And the impediments to doing that are so so low that people send out all kinds of emails at all times during the day and night. And one has, for better or worse, to respond to them, at least politely and often constructively. What is something
2: about 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 Bob Weinberg that people would be surprised to discover?
0: Well, uh, people might be most surprised to discover that um, I'm actually something of a peasant. Uh, I like to uh, dig holes in the ground to build rock walls, to construct buildings, uh, the, the cabin... My wife and I are now sheltering in in the woods of New Hampshire uh, from the COVID epidemic. Bob Weinberg likes to wire up electrical systems and plumbing systems and all types of things that, that handymen uh, do. Uh, Bob Weinberg likes to garden and grow all kinds of plants. And so there is this other side of my existence that is, uh, really compensates for the stress of doing science on occasion. Moreover. Since 1957, I've had the hobby of family history. What happened to them over the next 300 years? Um, and I don't know why I started it, except that I was interested in trying to understand how all the people who my parents were talking about in the old country, how they were actually connected to us, which uh, started this categorizing.
2: So what do you think of the explosion of the use of genetics to build family trees and, and genealogies?
0: Well, uh... The explosion of genetics uh, is actually a bit of a mirage in my own case. Um, My parents were German Jews. I'm a so-called Ashkenazi Jew. And I often have been in chat rooms where people have touted the virtues of genetics to try to understand and find newfound relatives. And in such a chat room, every year or two somebody uh, exclaims how extraordinary this is and you can find out whom you're related to. But in the case of my own, Microethnic group. Everybody is rather closely related to everyone else. And any two Ashkenazi Jews, uh, if you look at their alleles shared in common, um, they're fourth or fifth cousins, even though the last time they uh, had a common ancestor might have been 500 years ago. And so in the case of, uh, of an endogamous group to which I belong, where people have married in, there's a small gene pool and uh, genetics is actually pretty useless in terms of building family trees. Uh,
1: so house building, uh, by the way, which was also uh, the hobby of uh, Churchill, uh, also gardening, uh, family tree. Um, what, was it really important for you to keep this every week, for example? How, how frequent it was, how often you were you were doing this to keep maybe your work-life balance? Is it really important for you and for researcher? you think?
0: The older I've become, the more important it's become for me, almost as an organic matter, for me to alternate between doing uh, scientific work for some week's time and then spending a weekend in the country just walking around the woods, cutting down dead trees, building rock walls, or doing important carpentry uh, work to maintain uh, our cabin deep in the woods of New Hampshire. So uh, this alternation is is very important uh, in my own life. Just doing one thing, I think I would be rather unhappy with.
2: So do you encourage that in your mentees? Do you, do you encourage people in the lab to to step out of the lab and have other interests at the same time?
0: I, uh, I've i always thought that all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, if I may quote an old saying. Um, and I I'm very pleased for them to go and do other things. I'm excited when they do so. I don't urge them to do so. That has to come from themselves rather than, from some dictate from the principal investigator. But I I like it when people do other things because I think it's a much healthier way.
2: If you were to look back over, so you've had a long career and science has changed in many ways, um, what do you think are the the, the biggest challenges in science today compared to the way science was 40 years ago?
0: Some of the biggest challenges in science uh, today relative to 40 years ago come from the funding situation where uh, 40 years ago, if you had half a brain, it was easy to get a pretty good faculty position. Now it's much more challenging. There are fewer positions. People like me have bred like rabbits. So (laughs) I have probably uh, 80 or 100 trainees. uh, And and if you can imagine the Malthusian exponential growth of the scientific community, and I am not atypical, one begins to realize that academic positions have grown in a linear fashion over these last four decades, whereas the production of highly trained scientists has grown exponentially. And clearly, there is a disconnect there, part of which is addressed by the ever-increasing allure of working in industry, where there are many challenging and interesting jobs, which I think are highly uh, attractive and exciting for young people to undertake. But clearly, to the extent one is interested in an academic career, there, it's more challenging than it used to be, as I just said. Secondly, uh, some kinds of uh, experiments are very expensive. Running a large mouse colony or uh, doing a large data set acquisition with all kinds of complex instrumentations—that also can be very challenging.
2: So, so as we're beginning to wrap up, uh, we want to ask you a little some some advice for young scientists, but. Maybe first, uh, can, you, can you think of some bad recommendations that you've heard over the years, things that, that colleagues say that you, <laughs> you would say, that's not, the, that's not good advice?
0: Bad recommendations. Uh, well, some bad recommendations are that a person working in a field should learn all the minute details of the published literature in, in that field. Um, I think that's actually counterproductive. I think it's better sometimes not to know about certain things Um, because it begins to intimidate one about moving in different areas. In other words, uh, I don't want to know everything that's known in this area simply because it might constrain me and make me feel very intimidated in terms of venturing to the right or to the left of what we're doing at present. So a little bit of self-imposed ignorance is good. And obviously that runs very strongly against the advice many young people have been given. If If I may give some positive advice, It's very important for me to encourage people to look in a whole different series of scientific areas. Since 1975, I organized a weekly intergroup um, research meeting at MIT, where the people in my group and uh, more than almost a dozen other groups are exposed to a whole diverse series of topics, and and for me, uh, and the people in my lab, attendance at this intergroup meeting It's it's critical. It's essential. People in my laboratory are mandated; they have to go to this meeting because I want them to know about lots of different areas of science, not just what we're working on. If you
1: think if you think about it, um, what advice would you give to yourself this time if you met yourself 20 years ago?
0: I think my uh, one piece of advice was not to presume too much about the future. The future is hardly guaranteed. And it's important to take one step at a time. I have my own psychological background. I come from people uh, who were uh, middle class, reasonably successful in Germany, and suddenly were told they were subhuman, and everything they had was taken away from them. And so this uh, has imprinted on my thinking the impermanence of human existence and the fact that one should never take anything for for granted, and that things change enormously. One should never presume that everything that one has been doing um, is actually going to be important, that anyone who uh, reads one's work will actually care about it, and that one always must enjoy the act of doing science rather than simply doing it because it's a good way of making a living or a not-so-good way of making a living.
2: <laughs> so so where can people find out more about you and your work? So. Um, do, do, are you on Twitter and uh,
1: social media? That's the moment you, you do the auto-promotion.
0: <laughs> I, 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 I'm not a big uh, self-promoter. Um, one of the things I was brought up by my German-speaking uh, parents was not to be a Wichtigmacher, which means someone who struts around and uh, imparts to everyone how important one is. Either people will uh, discover my work and find it interesting, But I don't like to self-promote. I think that's rather distasteful. Uh, Given my notoriety, that may sound uh, really inappropriate for me to say, but it happens to be the truth. And moreover, I would never use Twitter, if only because it's been used and abused by the clown whom we happen to have now in the White House of the United States. So I'm not about to release tweets. My laboratory maintains a a website, which has some of the information Mm -hmm. that people might be interested in, But beyond that, I don't believe in trying to impress on people how important one is. And by the way, um, as I said before, either one enjoys doing science or one doesn't uh, enjoy doing it. And one should never strive to do work which one believes one or two generations from now will be remembered. It doesn't really do much good if people remember you long after you're gone from this earth. The question is, did you lead a good life? a productive and interesting and enjoyable life while you were doing the work, rather than whether you're going to be remembered by your children and your grandchildren and all one's other uh, descendants in one way or another.
1: Uh, is, is there anything else you would like to, to, to add, any, any closing remark?
0: I was just thinking before, this may not be that relevant, uh, I've often been asked about the utility of MD-PhD programs. And this touches on a theme we discussed earlier about the successes of my trainees and how their successes were preordained from the moment they came into my laboratory because of their inborn gifts and their education. In the case of MD-PhD programs, people often tout them as being extraordinarily useful because they provide training that is so successful that all of the graduates of MD-PhD programs, these double degree programs, go on to have fabulously successful careers but I think that's a bit nonsensical. The MD-PhD programs are so selective that whoever starts such a program, independent of what they learn during that program, are preordained to be successful because they were already so successful before they began those programs and therefore did not necessarily glean anything useful from having trained in such programs. I know that's a side uh, diversion, but it, it may deal with the issue of the extent to which uh, one's future career is already uh, preordained relatively early in one's uh, training and education.
2: So, Bob, it's been a... Pleasure to have you. You are one of my scientific heroes. So I've been reading your papers for years. Oh, well, thank you. And I know from having met you a couple of times, you're such a great talker. So thank you very much for, for, for giving tips to the Lonely Pipette. And I'm sure uh, young researchers are going to find it very useful.
0: Volontiers, avec plaisir. And uh, Renaud, <laughs> enchanté de faire votre connaissance. Uh, avec plaisir. Uh, it was an honor to speak with you. À la prochaine. Bye-bye.
1: So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at the Lonely Pipette. We
2: hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that
1: you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet, and please share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile you will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show.
2: And remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the lonely pipette can help you to do better science.
1: A bientôt. A Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.